Hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here this week. Crystal, really looking forward to this. We're going to be talking to Justin Jackson. And Justin Jackson is a running back with the LA Chargers. And he's also um, a political activist. And he's, you know, he's very involved. He was, he was a big part of Force the Vote. He's the reason why Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, injected herself into the discussion. So um, really fascinating guy. And um, listen, he's critical of the Republicans and the Democrats, but he's very sharp when it comes to calling out the Democratic BS. And, you know, when you think about what's going on this week, the thing on the top of everybody's minds, if they follow these things as closely as we do, is the $2,000 checks. They just they backed off of a very clear cut promise that they made. And we have we have the Warnock ad, which shows like, I'm going to give you $2,000. A literal picture of a $2,000, not a $1,400 check of a $2,000 check. You have Biden doing a rally in Georgia where he says, we are going to quote, immediately get you a $2,000 check. And then you have Ossoff saying within the first, I always I can't say that name well, Ossoff. 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 <laughs> uh, it's always, always sounds slightly dirty. Ossoff. Um, <laughs> And he was saying, we're going to get it to you within the next week or the first week. Yeah. So. Liars. All liars. Total all liars. liars. Now, to be fair to Warnock and Ossoff. I did it again? You did. It's good. It sounded good to me. <laughs> to, to be fair to them, they did apparently call, um, you know, Biden, Biden and Democratic leadership. And they were like, listen, we, we were crystal clear. We were on the record, son. Like, we need to fight for this. Yeah. But, you know, they're up against the tsunami now because Biden's backed off of it. Right. So we already know he's backed off of the $2,000. Now it's $1,400. And look, the best that you can say is that there was some ambiguity about Mm -hmm. whether or not they meant a full $2,000 or you already got $600, so we'll give you another $1,400. But why do you want to seize on – why are you looking for an excuse to do less? Like, Mm -hmm. just think about that mentality start. So they've already backed off of that. Then we start getting these reports of like, well, it's going to take some time and maybe in March, maybe in April. Then we start getting reports that – Oh, actually, they didn't expect to win. So they didn't really have a plan, right? So they were like caught flat-footed was the term that they used in Politico because they expected to lose. And then they thought they just had the excuse of, oh, the Republicans are bad. And so we can't do anything. Oh, too bad. Sorry. We'd really love to, but we can't. So they're trying to figure this out. And the latest piece is that Biden comes out and says that he is willing to negotiate on more targeted checks. So decreasing the number of people further, they're already means tested, Mm -hmm. which I think they should be universal. Personally, Mm -hmm. you could tax it back, but just give everybody a check. They're already means tested. He wants to further negotiate down to an even more right-wing position. And then (laughs) the last piece that I just saw is apparently they're still committed to trying to do this with the Republicans and like begging and pleading Republicans who are never going to come on board to try to get to 60 votes through regular order rather than just doing it the way that Bernie Sanders has been saying from the beginning. Just do it through reconciliation where you only need the Democratic caucus to come along and like forget these. But they are not going to vote for your thing, no well, matter yeah, how but, many things you do for them. But see, that's where I get conspiratorial, because I think there's a decent chance they 
fucking know that. They know they're not going to get to 60 votes. So what are they doing? They want to get the virtue signaling points of like, I proposed a thing that's good. See the good thing I propose, which has a 0% chance of getting through. They want that when they, what they could have done is exactly what they said on the campaign trail, which is there's two ways you can go about it. One of them is day one, you propose a $2,000 check bill and you try to get through regular order. You're going to learn in two days, you can't get through regular order. And then you immediately start the process for reconciliation, or you could just start the process for reconciliation day one with $2,000 checks. Right. And that alone is it would get you such a giant political victory on top of just the material benefit of now everybody in the country is going to be better off and they're going to view you as the hero. You know what I mean? Like, it was so hard to fuck this up. You have to be so fucking dense to fuck this up. Yeah. You said $2,000 checks within the first week or immediately. Now you didn't do that. And now, you know, if the Republicans are intelligent, they're not. But if they were intelligent, they they could win on this alone. They could run ads like, you know, just show this is what they said. This is what you got, mm-hmm. you know. But this idea of like, now we're going to make the $2,000 checks a $1.9 trillion bill with a lot of other stuff in it. Now there's good stuff in it, but that's not the same thing. Now it's something totally different. And even the people like Holly who were on board for $2,000 checks, now they're not going to be on board for that. Right. So you can do that and try to get it through regular order. A COVID relief bill just passed. It was shitty, but a COVID relief bill just passed. They're going to do another $1.9 trillion bill like that? No. So it's almost like, and you tell me what you think, because is it that they're looking for a way to be like, oh, whoopsies, we couldn't get it by. <laughs> or are they really stupid enough to think, yeah, oh yeah, this has a shot. What fucking nine Republicans are you going to get for a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill with $1,400 checks and had a $15 minimum wage in the fucking package? You're not even going to get, and I, I'm for that, of course, yeah. but you're not going to get that with 60 fucking votes. Who's going right. to vote for your, Lindsey Graham is going to vote for your $15 the minimum o- wage? The only thing that you have any shot, and I think you and I assess the probability of this a little bit differently, the only thing you have any shot on getting 60 votes on is just $2,000. I don't even agree with you on that, yeah. Because, <laughs> because you have a number of Republicans who are in support of it and because it is an 80% issue. So at the very least, people are going to be squirming about that vote. Now, probably you're right. In yeah, the end, you wouldn't get the votes because Republicans, unlike Democrats, are willing to take like a short-term hit in service of their long-term political goals. So they want to deny Biden any sort of a win. This would be a big win for him. Therefore, they're not going to do it. And they really obviously don't care about the people. But your question is really interesting of like, are they really this dumb? Right. Yeah. Like Joe Biden, after being in the Obama White House for eight years and witnessing the bad faith and the total obstruction and unwillingness, I actually kind of think he is. So you th- Okay, so you think it's stupidity because, and not because virtue his whole He doesn't have an ideology. His only ideology is basically like, I'm the bipartisan guy. Mm-hmm. And he thinks of these people as like his friends, <laughs> you know? And so I just think after 40 years in Washington, he can't let go of, of that thing. So I don't know about the other people around him, mm-hmm. but I actually do think he is that stupid that he thinks he can maybe get these. Rep- if I give him this, if I give him that, Mitt Romney's a good guy. Lindsey Graham's my buddy. You know, Mitch McConnell and I actually work really well together. I actually think he's stupid enough to believe that if he keeps pairing it back and pairing it back and pairing it back, he's going to get them on board. He's a fool. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I can't get over is that there's not a single person in the room who raises their hand and says, this is beyond stupid. Sir, what are you doing? Not a single (laughs) one. You got a room full of five, six, seven people 
Not yeah. one of them is like, this is the dumbest thing anybody's ever done ever, you know? And to get back to your point on the, on the um, 60 votes, I think with the Republicans, they will flip on a dime and use the most ridiculous arguments. Like, they'll immediately go back to like... The deficit's really bad. Have you seen this deficit? Right. Meanwhile, under Trump, they were like drunken sailors. It was just like, oh, a tax cut that blows a $2 trillion hole in the deficit where we give all the money to corporate America and the wealthy? Sure, bro. Sounds great. Yeah. So yeah. they're massive hypocrites. Massive military spending, of course. They don't ever yeah. blink an eye at that. I think you get two does. or three Republicans for the 60 well, we'll never for, know because they're not going to pursue an intelligent yeah. an intelligent strategy. And I think it really is important to underscore this point. The most important thing here is that people are getting fucked, right? That's mm-hmm. number one. People are getting fucked. But the political piece is just – it's so foolish. Every single political player who's messed with these checks has gotten burned. Every single one. Mansion. Ma- well, so – and let's start back in the fall. Like, first of all, I think the only reason Trump was as close as he was was because he sent out one round of checks that had his name on it. Mm-hmm. If he had sent out another round, he'd probably be president again right now. Um, Nancy Pelosi messed around, tried, pretended like she was negotiating, and ultimately was the person that stood in the way of another round of checks going out. House Democrats barely hold on to their majority and just got really blown out in this election across the country. Then you fast forward to the next round of negotiations. Mitch McConnell tries to play cute, thinking that he's going to, remember how he did this? He tied a bunch of stuff together, Mm -hmm. these poison pills, so that it wouldn't, engineering it so it ultimately wouldn't pass, but so that his candidates in Georgia could go and say, oh, we voted for it. Look, we're really in support of it. Everybody saw right through it. They knew that it was the Senate Republicans Mm -hmm. who were standing in the way of those checks going out. And both of them, monumental, I mean, it was a close election. But the fact that the Democrats won both of those seats was a monumental upset. Like, that should not have happened. And so, once again, they're messing around with these checks, and they are trying their damnedest to rescue the Republicans from, like, political oblivion. Yeah, and uh, I guess the only silver lining is the what happened with Joe Manchin. It was the ultimate, like, fuck around and find out moment yeah. where, and shout out to Corbin Trent for apparently leading the charge on this, yep. but, you know, basically what happened was they flooded the airwaves and put ads all over West Virginia that were like, this motherfucker just waffled on the $2,000 checks. What do you guys think of that? And Manchin was like, I, no, I, I'm, I'm kind of for it, though. I don't know why you guys are acting like I'm not for it, even though I just said I'm probably not for it. But I'm kind of for it now, so please back off. No, his initial language was absolutely not. Direct quote on the when he gets asked about the checks, absolutely not. Almost instantly, he started to backtrack. He realized, I think, from the social media backlash and whatever, that or somebody around him was intelligent enough to be like, uh... Don't do that. No, yeah. don't do that. So they called back the Washington Post oh. reporter to be like, when we said that, we actually meant a little bit something different. Uh. And then once the ads run, he fully walks it back and is like, no, I'm open to it. I just want to think about the targeting or whatever bullshit language he used. Ultimately. That actually gives me hope. It gives me hope. It should. Because it, what it does is it shows like direct targeted campaigns have very beneficial effects where, you know, but again, it all goes back to leadership and discipline. You have to be on message, completely on message. Everybody get on the same page, be aggressive, be direct. And then, yeah, apparently you could move these people, you know, and that's a big thing that Justin cares deeply about, whether it's on Medicare for all and force the vote, whether it's on the $2,000 checks. And I think, you know, he's, he's a, a special guy and I think he's going to win everybody over. hundred percent. Absolutely. One of the things that is 
positive, hopeful, optimistic about the Biden era versus the Obama era is there's a lot more Justin Jacksons out there. Mm. Even, you know, the example with Corbin Trent, like there's a lot more like sort of official progressive infrastructure to do those kinds of efforts and ability to raise the grassroots money to push some of these politicians. And there's just a lot more people from the jump who are actually willing to say, yeah, you're a Democrat and you might be better than the Republicans, but that's not good enough. And we're going to hold your feet to the fire. So, um, Justin Jackson, excited to talk to him. All right. So I am super excited to welcome to the show, LA Chargers running back and activist, Justin Jackson. Justin, thanks for being here, man. So good to see you all Uh, finally get here to DC. We owe you because you came from like a thousand miles away to come see us. Yeah. Yeah, And happened to come on like literally the coldest day of the year. So yeah, that cross country (laughs) trip. I'm not a huge, I don't love flying. That's why I'm like, I hate it, man. can we get some high speed rail? Because <laughs> like I hate flying. I'd rather be on a train. But uh, yeah, that is what the four, four, five hour flight. Then the three hour time difference is really what gets it. Oh, so the right now you time. feel like it's much earlier, earlier. than it is. Yeah. Okay. It's like what would be mm. like nine o'clock. Yeah. yeah. Are you a morning person or not? Yeah, I get up pretty early because during the season I'll get up at like five forty five, yeah. and so then like my sleeping in off season is like seven. Yeah, that's you, my that's my schedule. Do, do you sleep a lot? Like, do you feel like you need to you need to get eight or nine hours in order to be at peak physical performance, or are you one of the like super sleepers where you get four and you're good? No, I can't. I don't know. I don't know how. I have teammates. I'll do that. They'll go to really? bed like two a.m. I'm like, because if I get less than like six, I like to get between seven and eight. If I get around six, I like wake up. I'm like a zombie. It's hard to get through meetings. It's just like I need that. I need that sleep. It's interesting how that works, right? Yeah, like, totally. I'm that same way too, though. Like I can noticeably tell a difference in the way I feel, yeah. in like the way my brain works on the show, all that stuff if I don't get enough sleep. Yeah. Um, so to give two examples on this, apparently there's a, one article I read about LeBron James that says he sleeps like nine or 10 hours a day, wow. which is like, that's like that's, kid numbers. Like when you're a kid, you need more wow. sleep. That's like kid numbers. And then the other end of the spectrum is Tiger Woods, who says he sleeps like three or four hours a night. Hmm. Wow. And they're both and they're the both best. the best of the best. Hmm. So it's weird how that works, right? Yeah. Some people like, f- they almost function better on less. I, I don't understand. Trump yeah. said he, he gets like no sleep. Yeah. Well, and he's an amazing performer. I mean, he, and he's he in great physical job. condition. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks great. Lard is looking on point. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Justin, for people who don't know you just tell people a little bit about yourself where you grew up how you got into politics how you got into football all that good stuff yeah so uh, i'm from the suburb of chicago originally my parents uh met in chicago my dad's from detroit my mom's side of the family is from mississippi moved to chicago um so midwest we're definitely a midwest family um i started playing football when i was eight i actually started playing because i have an older brother two years older he like went in and signed up and everything and i was mostly just like a gamer i was just Mm. game Mm. and and I was like, oh, I want to be like my brother. So then I was like, Dad, let me play. Um, and that's just where it all started. And I've been playing football ever since, obviously. Uh, I went to college at Northwestern, um, then got drafted to go out to the L.A. Chargers. So I've been in L.A. for the past three years. Um, as far as politics, I think the 2016 election was kind of my political awakening. Mm. Um, I, you know, I come from you know mainstream liberal family but we never really talked about politics the one political memory i think i remember is like when obama got elected in 2000 mm. other than that how like, were you in 08 uh i would have been 12 oh my god okay 
So, so very young. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so did you get the signet, like how big of a moment it I, was? Or I what? got the symbolic. Right, the symbolic. You know, the symbolic effect of it, especially obviously being a young black person, right, mm-hmm. in America. It's like, wow, like Obama got elected. It's like that huge uh, symbolic cultural effect that, you know, I really felt that. Um, but I really didn't think about politics really until the 2016 election. And I think it was unique at Northwestern because um, we had a lot of conversations and we would have two three hour conversations in the locker room sometimes but it was mostly about like i feel like cultural Mm. ideology not really no one really knew too much about politics or followed it um but i do remember i like when obviously trump was the nominee and clinton was the nominee and i was like obviously i have to like try and get people not to vote for trump right but i'm like so i have to get people to vote for clinton i was like but i don't really know anything about hillary right and so that's when i started looking for like to learn more and when i when i want to speak about something i want to make sure i'm knowledgeable about it so i didn't want to just be talking on my ass and so i think i started watching like msnbc and cnn and i realized like they were just talking about trump 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 like they weren't talking about anything i wasn't learning anything so that's when i uh started going on youtube and actually like i get it trump's bad right what else can you what else can you tell me so i can actually have a conversation with people and try and convince them to, you know, be where I am as opposed to where they are right now. Um, and it's different being in a, in a college locker room, especially because we have people from Texas, yeah. Florida, Georgia, California, like everywhere. You know what I mean? So there was a lot of different ideologies and personalities. Um, so that's why I wanted to learn, you know, really dig in and get in, into the weeds of everything. And that's where I found um, shows like TYT, like your show, Jimmy's show. So it, start, it started with TYT, it right? I feel with like T- that's everybody's yeah, show there. Yeah, that's where it started. Mm-hmm. And I, I really love TYT because they had like long segments about policy. And I was like, wow, I feel like I'm learning a lot. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, like the sensationalism of, of mainstream news. And this is 2015, 2016. So it's like, is it primary time or is it no, general, it's general I, election time? Yeah, okay. I missed the primary. And it's funny because I remember when one of my friends, his girlfriend was like, she's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm like voting for Bernie. Like I, I'm a Bernie person. And my friend who's now very progressive, I think at the time I remember him being like, mm, I don't know about Bernie hmm. because, you know, that whole I, I, idea that he's too radical and all this type of shit. Hmm. You know what I mean? And obviously now, like, I think we've both been kind of taken out. A lot of us have been taken, especially young people out of that, like, oh, Bernie's too radical. Like, and now Bernie is, you know, the the man of the people, the man of the young people. Um, but that was kind of the, yeah, the first introduction I, I had into, into lefty politics. And so what was your experience like then when Trump actually wins in 2016? Oh, what did that feel like? It was, it was, it was wild, especially being in college. I remember because like Northwestern is a very like liberal, like, you know, like elite liberal institution. Um, And so there was literally like, like some uh, teachers were like, you know, if you can't come to class because you're too distraught and too traumatized. I swear, I promise you, I promise you. There were some professors that were like, you know, canceling class for like the rest of the week. Like it was wild. Like it was really a traumatic experience for a lot of people. And it's like, and it's like, of course, like you see a lot of people that, you know, look at, look at those institutions as, you know, it's weird coming into it from a perspective of not knowing before. But then I think of people like yourself who went through the Obama years and everything and actually understand like the dynamic of everything. And then you hear that and you laugh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're yeah. in it and you don't know, it's like, okay, I guess people are like, people are really traumatized. They're really scared, you know, and all this type of stuff when it's really like both sides are way more similar than, than you think. <laughs> That's true. So you seem to, one of the things I noticed about you right away when we started talking is that you 
you really focused like a laser on policy. Yeah. And you were like, when I wanted to learn about it, that's the, the first thing you went towards was policy. Yeah. So walk me through your, your learning during the general election of 2016. You're learning about Trump. You're learning about Hillary. And then when you finally started getting the facts of it, walk me through that. How'd you feel about that? Did you, did you vote for Hillary or did you sit it out or what? I actually didn't. I sat it you out. Sat it out? Okay. I sat it out because I just had learned so much. And especially for me and, and, uh, my family, you know, coming from the inner city of Chicago, my mom's side of the family, my dad's side of the family coming from the inner city of Detroit. Right. Like I understand what a lot of these policies that were pushed, you know, under Bill Clinton on, you know, during the, uh, Bush years and during the Obama years, how like both sides, like, you know, these cities remained exactly the same throughout both Republican and Democrat administrations, yeah. right? And so I'm seeing like, how am I going to be out there pushing people to vote for someone who I know has had very, very adverse effects on communities like mine, like that my parents came from? You know what I mean? So I didn't feel comfortable, kind of similar with Biden. I didn't feel comfortable going out there telling people to vote for this person because to me, a vote is an endorsement. Right. Like a mm-hmm. vote is saying... So you own what they do. Right. You yeah. own, you have to, you know what I mean? Like, and... And I, but I didn't say, you know, don't, I didn't also didn't say don't vote for Biden, like, cause I understand the, uh, you know, who Trump is and, and what he, what he brings to the table and everything he did over the past four years. So I really felt like I was between a rock and a hard place. Um, and I felt like that in 2016 as well, just from learning all the, the true policies that not only that she had supported in the past, but that she would be supporting in the future. And she's very hawk, she was very hawkish. And I, that, for me, like being anti-war is, is a very big thing for me. So was yeah. it the Iraq war that made you say, I can't do it? Or was it I mean, outsourcing? Like what, what it's, I mean, was the, it everything? It's like, everything. What was, it was everything. The Iraq okay. war, um, you know, NAFTA, and then especially like things like welfare reform, right? Because mm. a lot of, when you think about welfare and welfare queens and all this, all this type of rhetoric and that, that mostly goes against, you know, poor black and brown people. And so I, that, that, you know, turned that, you know, I guess it makes my skin crawl, as they would yeah. say about Bernie on MSNBC. MSNBC. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing about what you're saying is it's like the polar opposite of what we're often told about people who didn't vote for Hillary right. and didn't vote for Biden. It's like, oh, well, they must have all this privilege right, and come yeah. from this background that just enables them to not really care about all the hardships. And what you're saying is like, no, I actually didn't vote for them because of what I've seen in my own life and in my own right. community. It's the polar opposite of the narrative you normally hear 100 and and i think a lot of times we think about these numbers right like sixty-eight thousand people die from you know not having health care in the richest country in the world like we think about it as almost as abstractions and then but those are real people with real lives right tell the story of your mom right oh so when i was three years old my mom passed away from breast cancer mm-hmm. and um obviously being super young i don't have a lot of memories about it um but once i got older I started, you know, questioning or asking questions to my family members because I wanted to understand kind of the financial hardship that, you know, potentially put our family in because, you know, we didn't, my parents and my dad didn't tell me much about like finances at the time. Um, So what I learned was not only obviously on top of the traumatic effect of of losing a parent, losing a wife, losing a daughter, all this type of stuff that my family had to go through, my mom was worried while she was fighting that cancer, worried about, oh, what, what? Is this going to bankrupt our family? 
right? As, as she's 30, 30 years old, oh about God. to leave her family, she's worried about money. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, it's so sickening. And But that's the reality of the situation we lived in. And that was in 2000. 2000 it's exactly the same. There's hundreds of thousands of more families that have went through that same trauma. And it's like... So you, it's hard. It's hard for me to go out there and tell people who have went through that. Oh, you have to vote for Joe Biden, yeah. who doesn't support legislation that would prevent that from happening. Said he would veto it. Said he would veto it if it if it came mm-hmm. to his desk and he had the power to help all these people in this country. He said he would veto it. Like think about the 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 power of that, right? And it's like that doesn't not sit well with me. And so that's why I fight so hard on these fronts because I want people to realize that yes, you can hate the Republicans, all good and fine, but you these. Democrats are in power right now and have the ability to help people. And if they're not going to do it, if they're not willing to do it because of all their influences, then you need to be willing to call that out. It strikes me you guys both have actually kind of similar stories. Should I tell my dad's story? Yeah, yeah I've, I've told this a number of times. I don't, I don't tell it too much because there is a degree of like ambiguity. Like I don't really know what would happen, but you know, my dad had extreme back pain when he was 56 years old and uh, he kept going to this chiropractor over and over. And the reason he was doing that is because the chiropractor is inexpensive right. and he could afford it and mm-hmm. he didn't have insurance. And he was told by the chiropractor, like, I oh, don't worry, we'll take yeah. care of it. You'll be fine in a little bit. So he kept going to this chiropractor. Anyway, eventually, he had to go to the emergency room because the pain was so excruciating. Mm-hmm. They found out it was a tumor that had started in his lungs and metastasized to his spine. <laughs> and, you know, he was dead weeks later. And right. so, you know, I always say part of it is the fact that, yes, he, he was not generally pro-science. So he's not maybe the best example of somebody who would have been by the book. But again, if it was free for him to go to a real doctor, would he have gone to a real doctor right. earlier? Maybe, yeah. right. maybe he would have, you know, so, uh, you know, it's a similar experience to what you went through, but it's, it's just gross, man. It's heartbreaking. That, and, and these things, people think these things are debatable. Right. Like, no, every other developed country has universal health care. Yeah. We can't do it in this country. You said the numbers, 45,000 to 68,000 die every single year from lack of health care. Real people. That's, we can fix that. It's not even hard to fix that. We can fix that. And it saves money. And it saves money. That's it right. It's $5 trillion saves yeah. money. Mm-hmm. Over a decade. Right. And to just say, well, the Democrats are a little better than the Republicans on it, which they are, isn't sufficient. When yeah. you have in your power, I mean, let's just be clear about this. Right now, Joe Biden and Democrats have in their power the mm-hmm. ability to give every person in this country emergency Medicare. Yep. They could do it mm-hmm. right now through budget reconciliation, even through an executive order. They could do it. They make an affirmative choice yep. not to. And then people get mad at you, get mad at you, get mad at me when we call them out for that. Right. And the, and the, and the thing that makes me so upset is that we have the ability to actually put pressure on them, right? Because like you said, it's an affirmative choice. Biden can either choose to do Bernie's Medicare expansion in the COVID relief bill, or he can choose to, you know, subsidize COBRA and just Mm. hand money to, you know, these insurance companies, which are still going to increase premiums and squeeze people who can't afford it out from getting healthcare during a pandemic. It's sickening, right? That's a choice he's making. And if we're not willing to call him out, and not only to put pressure on him, just like people are doing with with Mansion with the two thousand dollars checks and some you know some of these other things. If we're not willing to do that, then we're part of the problem. And that's why I, that's why I talk so much to progressives in, in Congress because before we didn't have a voice. Mm. It Nancy Pelosi doesn't care if we're talking to her. You know, so, some of these uh, corporate Democrats they don't feel that pressure. Not they get all. ratioed every single day on Twitter. They don't care. <laughs> yeah. They just keep going, right? But we actually got these progressives in in the halls of power that can fight for us. And 
what I'm trying to do, and I think what a lot of people just in the lefty space are trying to do is make sure that they don't get caught up in the DC bubble and they remember the real pain that people are feeling right now and how people can't wait. People can't wait five to 10 years from for some of this legislation. They need it now. And how am I going to tell this person who doesn't have health care in the middle of a pandemic that they have to wait and just be okay with, with Biden and, and what he's doing and, and what the uh, Democrats are waiting a month or two on this on the on stimulus checks and stuff like that. I can't tell people who are are hurting right now to wait. They don't have time to wait. And so I need to make sure I'm applying that pressure to those people in power so they understand the real, you know, hurt and struggle that people are going through on the ground. Yeah. So when people when like Biden goes out and says we're going to get the checks out immediately. Immediately, right. And then we hear, well, by immediately we meant Maybe our March, maybe mm. April. And oh, by the way, when I said 2000, I really meant 1400. And oh, by the way, we're going to target, further target For, the yeah, checks, yeah. meaning that they're going to go to Even fewer people. I mean, it just, it really does kind of blow my mind because this one is so clear. Not only are they moving the direction of doing the wrong thing and also just being complete liars in terms of what they promised the public, but this is a political disaster. Mm. You made a really clear promise, mm -hmm. and yet you're looking for every excuse to try to walk away from it. And I, let me just add to that one thing. I saw earlier today, Ossoff and Warnock are mad. They called Biden like... What are you doing? Right. We, like, will they'll lose re-election oh, if yeah. they don't get the $2,000 checks out because the ads were crystal clear. <laughs> Warnock's ad said, like, I'm going to give you a $2,000 check. Right. <laughs> Literally. Not exactly 1400. that. And yeah. Ossoff said, Ossoff is on video saying, next week, meaning yeah. the first week of the Biden administration, we'll get you that $2,000 check. And then nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And like I said, there are people, I mean, we have to think about it. This is what, nine, I guess it's what? January, so like 10 months almost of COVID, and people got $1,200, maybe some unemployment. And but, then 600 And, and then the 600 and that's it. Mm -hmm. Like, And then they said these are coming out immediately. These people needed the money right now, mm -hmm. yeah. right? So every single day you wait is another day that people are running out of money to feed their family. Like, this is not a joke, right? And it's like, politics is such a game to people that have been in the D.C. bubble for so long. Like Joe Biden, who's been there for 40-some years. Like, it's a game to them, it seems like. These are real people people's lives. People are waiting on this money so they can literally feed their family, pay rent, whatever they need to do to survive in America, right? So like all you're patting your feet and you're doing, you know, you're talking about impeachment, you're talking about all these all these other things. People need money, right? right? They okay, cool, you're trying to prevent Trump from running again in 4 years. Well, people aren't worried about that right now when they're worried about feeding their families. Mm -hmm. So that's what the Democrats need to understand is that if they keep doing uh, stunts like this, they're going to completely lose their base. And like you said, it's a political win. It's a win-win for them. Yeah. They get the they get the credit for um, giving people money, and you know they can they can further entrench their base for the next elections. It's a win-win. So why aren't they doing it? Yeah, I, I mean, in a lot of in a, a very real sense, the checks have become the most potent political issue in American politics. I mean, you could make an argument. The reason Trump came as close to winning as he did in the fall is because checks went out that had his name on it. Mm -hmm. The reason that Democrats did so poorly in the House and the Senate is because they played a bunch of games, you know, pretending to be negotiating, but ultimately standing in the way of another stimulus deal before the election. And then the two Republicans lose their seats in right. Georgia because McConnell tried to play cute mm -hmm. with the checks in December. I saw someone on Twitter saying that with regards to the GameStop situation, they were like, let's just send the hedge funders $600. <laughs> oh, right. They'll be fine. Just send them $600 checks. Don't worry about it. They'll be fine. Um, <laughs> got budget. They got a bud budget a little bit better. <laughs> That's, I, was, I have I was, an iPhone. 
what do you, what do you make of that whole mess? The the GameStop thing, and then how they're reacting. I'm I, I could say what I'm amazed by is that like. The rigging is out in the open. Oh my gosh, it's, it's so totally weird. Everyone's paying attention to. Yeah, it's they're not just even like, in the back room. It's in the front room yeah, for yeah. everybody Let's to just, see the rigging. Just ban buying it. Just ban buying that shares of GameStop and AMC and just ban it. And then they do it. It's, and then come to find out that app was funded by the hedge funds right. that are losing a shitload of money right now. <laughs> of course. No, it's wild. I think it's actually, I'm very encouraged to see how many people from like, either apolitical or mm -hmm. both sides of the spectrum um are kind of enraged by this because it's like a clear like you said it's a clear shot of the little guy actually beating the big guy right they lost and you think about it they lost billions of dollars and, and even these some of these people made millions or hundreds of thousands or even a little bit of money like that's still a huge difference in money right like billions versus millions is a big difference and you know like even despite all that they're coming out, like you said, it's brazen, it's out in the open, and I think people are paying attention. And I'm oh, like, yeah. maybe this can be the little spark we needed. I don't know. I'm always looking for these things, but I do think that this is a good signal of how we can work outside of electoral politics to affect electoral politics towards, you know, towards our side. Um, so I'm hoping that we could do more stuff like this in the future um, that, can, that can really affect this. And like you said, it's just so... Uh, it's so amazing to watch these billionaires go on CNBC and complain oh, so and upset. bitch. And the fun, the funniest thing was the guys like that fair share stuff is bullshit. <laughs> and then five seconds later, he's like, "We all got to pull together." Like as soon as he started losing, it's that meme where they're like, "It's like uh, my profits," and then it's like our losses. You know, what like, is that guy's name? Leon Cooperman. He's the same one. Remember back in the Democratic primary, he went on CNBC and was literally crying because oh, of Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. Not that you have anything to worry about with yeah. Elizabeth. Really, Warren, right. by the way, right. but he's like literally crying about how unfair it is and how their billionaires are so vilified. Oh, the class warfare. It's right. horrible. And then the former <laughs> SEC chairman uh, coming out and like comparing it to the insurrection. Yeah. Oh, I my was like, God. But this is how they view it, though. You have to really understand like this is the lens they view these things it's from. It's so telling. It is an attack on their very being. That's how they feel. They, I mean, it, again, the rigging's out in the open. So you have these hedge funds, you have these giant financial institutions, and they pay the politicians. Right. They're in bed together. So, like, honestly, and think of the optics of it, right? Because it's so easy to dupe people on this because when you look at Wall Street, yeah, it's a bunch of guys in suits and ties who are, right. like, all proper and whatnot. And you go to a Reddit board and they're, you know, cursing and saying politically incorrect things. And so, like, they'll take that out of context and be like, well, obviously these guys are the bad guys. But it's like, they're doing the shit that you set up the rules right, for. Right, so right. now they're beating you at your own game and they're like, and oh, we obviously got to change we the game now. Yeah. Right. We like, need regulation. Right. It's we all need all it right now. Right. And they're like, I'm not for that much regulation, but right now we need this regulation. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's awesome to watch. It's crazy that they were able to do this. It's unbelievable. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other piece of it was, so first you have the piece of Robinhood app just saying like, no, you can't buy GameStop. And <laughs> you can only close out your position. Right. Then I saw that they were actually, actually forcing people to sell, really? which is again like these hedge funds have to close out their position, and if people aren't willing to sell, they're basically—I mean—they're completely screwed, right? Right. And then on top of that, then everyone goes in like we're going to fuck them up on their ratings and give them one-star ratings, and Google comes in and says we're going to delete all of those. Those don't it's count. Literally a cabal. It's a cabal. A literal it's, cabal. It's an elitist cabal. <laughs> they like, all like called each other and were like, "We got to take care of the situation," and and they did. And they I did. Mean, just like that. There's this quote that's like, 
if you don't move, you don't feel the chains. You don't mm, notice the chains, mm, right? Mm. And that's what happened here. These Redditors moved around just a little bit, and suddenly you see exactly how yep. the game mm-hmm. is set up so clear. You have the illusion of you can get ahead. Right. You have the illusion of, oh, it's all fair play, and these guys making billions, it's just because they're such brilliant geniuses. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the minute you flip the game on them, nope, we can't have that. And you know what? It it's a lot like 2008, right? Like the way it unfolded in 2008, even people who were like half paying attention, you could see that these companies made terrible decisions mm-hmm. that bankrupted their companies, crashed the world economy, and then what happened? The government rushed in, bailed them out, and then they paid bonuses to the same people who made all the decisions that bankrupted the company. It's right. It's criminal. No criminal accountability. No one went to prison and bunch of home, bunch of people lost their homes, lost their wealth, right? And some of those people were, you know, it was their parents who were losing their homes, and now they're the ones on the Reddit board like, fuck you. Yeah. They've seen, I mean, they've seen how this all works. So it's just, a, it is an incredible moment. And Justin, part of what I found really interesting about it is there was this weird, like, unity. There was, like, a, a weird sort of coalition of people across all kinds of political yeah. lines that came together around mm-hmm. this thing of, like, fuck this system. Yeah. Because that is an incredibly, an incredible majority majority of Americans feel that exact way. Yeah, I mean, I think especially after 2008 and um, all the information that came out with it and, you know, with uh, movies like The Big Short and stuff, I think Mm. it helped regular people kind of... Because they make... Even explaining the stock market, it's so hard. Like even I don't know a lot about it. They you know purposely make it super difficult so that people that are uneducated about it don't know how to work it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think after two thousand nine, people really saw like, no, it's simple. Mm-hmm. They were cheating. They were def- they were their whole business model was fraud, and they got bailed out after it. And so I think just 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 another example where everyone can come together. Like, okay, I don't really. Maybe we don't agree on certain things here or there, but we can all agree that we're all getting screwed by Wall Street. Right. And at the end of the day, the government will always rush in and protect them because they're all friends. They all go to the same parties. Like you said, think about this. This affected right the, uh, a few hedge funds mm-hmm. from this one stock and, and some of the, uh, the AMC, some of the other stocks. But – Somehow they had connections to the SEC. Somehow they had connections to Google. Google. Sometimes they had somehow they had connections to Robinhood. Just of off these few hedge funds, right? So they all rush in to protect each other. At so, the end of the day, that's that's what it's always going to be. Yep, that's Class right. Allyship, right and, there. And the, the details of what they did with Robinhood out of this world because apparently they were feeling the pressure from everybody, and they were like, "We got to ease the restrictions and let people buy GameStop and let people buy AMC." And then they got a phone call, and the mm. phone call was the hedge funds. And the hedge, hedge funds said, we're going to give you a billion dollars. And so they kept the restrictions on and wow. took the billion dollars. It literally is an elitist cabal. And I, if anything, I feel silly and naive for underselling right. yeah, exactly. just how much of an elitist cabal yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. For sure. So what do these type of conversations look like in the locker room? You're talking about when you're at Northwestern. Yeah. Now, have you seen a shift in political consciousness since the Trump era, since the um, Black Lives Matter protests yeah. over the summer? Talk a little bit about that. I dynamic. think definitely with Black Lives Matter, if I start there, um, there was a shift in the, in the sense that a lot more 
players were speaking out mm. um, and willing to speak out. And and there was a video uh, that a lot of players did, like right in the in the midst of all the protests. It was like Patrick Holmes, you know, Deshaun Watson, Michael, like just some of the the most big name, biggest names in the NFL were coming out and speaking out about it. And I was like, it just felt really relieving for me because it's like. Sometimes I wonder, like, what's it like? What's it going to take to just mm. get more people to talk, like, speak out and talk about it? And I think because our culture, there's people are so apolitical, um, and you know, I don't really blame them, particularly because, like I said, a lot of us come from these communities where there's been Republicans, there's been Democrats, nothing really changes, and so a lot of people have kind of you know, walked away from politics. Yeah. But I think Black Lives Matter for sure brought that back to the forefront. Um, obviously, I wish more could have came out of that. <laughs> um, Let me pause on that one for a second. Was it was it ever tense? I mean, because that is one of the things that I feel like, you know, football is almost unique in the fact you really have a vast variety yeah. of, of backgrounds, of yeah. races, of religions, of everything represented. So was it tense at any point? Yeah, that the thing that's very encouraging is that it wasn't. Like, even people who I know are, you know, Trump supporters and whatnot were in support of, you know, us, you know, using our voice of protesting, even if they necessarily didn't want to speak out themselves, they were encouraging and had, you know, the backs of people who did want to speak out, which, you know, that solidarity, you know, it's amazing to see. And we need more of that, Um, particularly when it comes to issues that, you know, are outside of Black Lives Matter and actual political issues. We need more solidarity on that front. I will say with the Trump era, more people were paying attention, like be just because of the spectacle of it. Right. And more people were paying attention so we could actually have I could actually have conversations with people that actually knew more than I thought they would because they were paying attention a little bit closer simply because of Trump. And that, like I said, that's something that was encouraging. And I like having conversations. And I think I'm more geared to be able to have conversations with people from that aren't in my same ideology because mm-hmm. I'm fr- like I grew up and have been inhabited these spaces with people f- like you said from all different walks of life different areas um, different backgrounds and ideologies so I know how to like kind of talk people maybe away from their position without first coming out saying they're a racist because they support Trump or, or X, Y, and Z. Like you can't just name call at the beginning because then people shut down. They go back to their talking points and not really, not really willing to have that conversation. And I think I have and other people that kind of agree with me have been able to kind of move people on, on, on the issues. I'll give you an example. One, uh, one guy who is a Trump supporter, I talked to him in the locker room and I talked to him about the, the tax cut bill. And, you know, I mean, he makes probably between 10 and 20 million dollars a year. And I was like, so, you know, he was saying, oh, Biden's going to don't vote for Biden. He's going to raise tax in California to 60. Per-. I'm like, trust me, I don't think Biden's going <laughs> to do anything. So don't worry. Um, but, you know, you know, he's you know, watching Fox News and, and listen to all this stuff. So I'm like, I was like, so the, the Trump tax cut. You know, you agree with that, right? Yeah, of course I agree with that. Okay, so how much money did you get back on your taxes? He's like, well, actually, I had to pay more because they they closed some of the loop, the loopholes that you could with uh, like charities and stuff like that. So I'm like, so think about it. If you make between ten and twenty million dollars and your taxes, you didn't even get a cut on your taxes. Who do you really think those tax cuts were for? Mm-hmm. People that make a tippy, lot tippy, of tippy, yeah, tippy the tippy tippy top exactly. So I think if you can kind of put it in plain terms and actually. Um, you know, speak to how it affects their lives personally, they can kind of step back and be like, whoa, maybe, maybe I don't agree with that. And you're not, you're not always going to change people, people's mind right away, but 
if you can kind of get them to step back and maybe reevaluate, I've had people come to me five, six months later, like, wow, that talk you had with me, like it actually changed my mind. And now I agree with this point or agree with that point. And that's how, and that's how you have to change people's minds. And I know you've done it on your show. I'm sure you've done it on your show as well, but you have to be able to talk to these people across the aisle, across all different spectrums. And they're just people. You can't think of them as like this racist Trump supporter who was at the Capitol doing insurrection. Like that's a very small group of um, you know, the Republican base in my, in my belief. So, and to bolster your point there, yeah, the corporate tax rate, I believe went from 35% nominally to 25% nominally, but with all the loopholes in the corporate tax, right. it gets down to a lot of these corporations play effectively zero, zero tax. tax. I so, think there was a record number of fortune 500 companies that paid, which nothing, is unbelievable. Which is disgusting. <laughs> so do you sense a shift? Um, because you were saying that Originally, a lot of the talk in the locker room is like on social issues and it's more cultural. Do you sense a shift at all where like, because now you said you brought, you're bringing up economics behind right. the scenes. Yeah. So do you sense a shift where now once people start talking about economics, they realize like, oh shit, it's the elites versus the people. It's not even left versus right. Yeah. Um, I think that's tough because... I, you know, obviously a lot of the people in, in, make in a lot of locker room make a lot of money, right? right? <laughs> and so I've seen, I've seen some people who you wouldn't expect are Trump supporters who are his loud, you know, maybe really? his loudest supporter. Yeah. And my, money does change a lot. But I will say that during the election, like I had a lot of conversations, you know, with my teammates and they were like, I, I don't think I'm voting for anybody this time just because huh. Biden it was such, you know, a figure that a lot of, especially black people know that, you know. He might have been Obama's VP, but, you know, a lot of us know about his record. Um, so I did. I do think I feel a shift away from like just, oh, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican is more so like the step. I think we, we're one step away. They've taken a step away from like, oh, one side versus the other. And now they're like, I don't really I don't agree with either side. I'm going to sit out. And now we just got to get them to be like, no, there is a side for you. There's a space for you. Um, it. You know, but it's tough because obviously Bernie's in the somewhat in the Democratic Party. But I think with with um, a figure like him arising, that people can be like, well, I don't really agree with mainstream Republicans or Democrats, but I can agree with someone like Bernie, um, who has very sensible, internationally moderate left yeah. policies yep. that aren't this crazy radical thing. But you have to break it down for them because a lot of times they'll be like. I'll talk about universal health care and they'll be like, that sounds like socialism. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, but you have to kind of just massage. Right. Massage walk their them through it. Yeah, yeah. Walk them. Exactly. Yeah. Walk them away from kind of the, the propagandized but view that we have. Justin, it's my understanding that if you don't support Joe Biden, then you ain't black. Right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> no. And, and that was a, that was another thing that I think. I mean, you know, the Breakfast Club is a, is a is a big uh, podcast that a lot of you know black people watch, and so seeing him say that, it's like, like, like excuse you, right? Like, what is that entitled attitude? Yeah, like, I'm yes. entitled to your support. Yes. Right? What are you doing questioning me? I, yeah, okay, sure. I wrote the crime bill. And right, I'm all these black and brown people. <laughs> right, are you black or not? Right, exactly. I think that was one thing. I mean, the 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 poor kids and the white the white kids. Mm, yeah. that, that I mean that was oh, that was hor that's just a horrifying comment. But just like I mean they call him gaffes, but I think it's when he accidentally says exactly it's what he's thinking. It's a little too revealing. Yeah. 
Um, so th- I think that definitely was revealing for a lot of people and, and changed their mind. So talk a little bit about your sort of theory of change, because you're on the board of the People's Party or an advisor to the People's Party, which mm-hmm. is a third party effort. Yeah. Do you think that's the direction of totally breaking from the Democratic Party? Do you think it's possible to reform from within? Like, I know you were ver- very involved with Force the Vote, yeah. trying to get the progressive members to use the leverage that they have today to yeah. get things accomplished. Just talk about your views there. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think the third party avenue is one we should definitely explore simply uh, because why not, right? Like if you can, if you can actually have a party that can threaten even a small percentage of, you know, the democratic vote, you almost have to move towards a a parliamentary system that they have like in in the UK or whatever, where they have to build a coalition. Now, of course the Democrats are going to beat that down as, as hard as possible because, you know, they don't want anyone threatening their, their power and and the, the duopoly of the two parties. But I mean, if we can, if we can get that off the ground, then why not? Now, am I exclusive to that? No, I think, you know, obviously that is a a super long shot. I, I don't think, that means you don't try, but um, it is so hard. Just the barriers to entry in, in our in our uh, political system is, is very difficult. So that's why I tend to try and pressure the Democratic Party. Um, and you know, I I love the idea of the Justice Democrats. I love the idea of you know trying to pull the party left from within. Um, I think policy wise the justice democrats have done that um you know i think if you, you didn't have any justice democrats do i think you would have got this the the climate plan at least better you know to the point where it is right now yeah, i don't think true. so um i think you have to have that pre- those pressures and i think those pressures are working to a certain extent i think um to actually overcome the influence that money and corporations have on someone like joe biden you can't just work behind the scenes you can't because at, at the, the next chance they have to screw you, they will, right? And so my my theory, and I think a lot of people, you know, will agree with this, and it's not my theory, it's just one I um, subscribe to, is that you have to use the leverage and power that you have, right? What is the leverage and power that the left has? The left barely has any institutional power. They have maybe 10 real progressives in the House, Bernie, maybe Elizabeth Warren, maybe in the Senate, right? If you're If you think that you're just going to be able to grow that until the point of where we actually take it over, that's going to take maybe a hundred years. Like if we're being honest, just because the amount of time, money and effort it takes even to win one or two of these races Mm -hmm. against um, the incumbent entrenched uh, corporate Democrats. So what you have to use is shows like this, right? Shows that have millions or hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Those are real people, right? who have a real effect on politics. And if you can use that lefty media infrastructure in your grassroots uh, organizations like the Nurses Union and DSA, like if you can actually have calls to action, then that actually pressures the people in power. Like I said, I think Joe Manchin is a great example. He comes out, you know, fervently against the $2,000 checks. Later that day, he's forced to issue a statement simply because of pressure, mostly online. And you have to actually threaten their power right their seats and if you can actually go out there and say look joe biden is pushing this plan for um for his his covid relief health care plan that's going to give massive uh subsidies to uh, corporations and it's going to squeeze even more people out you're still gonna have to pay the premiums deductibles all stuff or there's this plan that bernie has that's a medicare expansion that's actually going to give more people health care through the government. That's an active decision 
Joe Biden is going to be making. Now, what are we doing to pressure him into making the right decision? Right. If we're just working behind the scenes and not actually putting anything out there and, and putting any political pressure on him, he's going to make the decision he's made for the last 40 years. Yeah, you absolutely. see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I know with force the vote and everything, I know, you know, we have we had our, our strategy and, and I, I don't think it's completely right to say that progressives don't have any strategy. I th think they do have a strategy. I think Pramila, Pramila Jayapal's interview uh, with Marion Williamson was very telling. Um, I, I suggest everyone go watch that. She talks about, you know, how they work through the task forces. They have all these commitments, et cetera, et cetera. All fine and great. She says she has three pages long about the commitment she got from Biden. I'm like, okay. But my thing is like, why does it seem like they never want to clue anyone else in, mm -hmm. right? It's like, we're here to help you pressure him, but it's almost like they never want to use us to to help them along along the way. And it's like, if you think you're just going to work behind the scenes and, and play patty cake with Nancy Pelosi and, and you're going to eventually get what you want, Not you're fighting happen. against no. a system with billions of dollars in it with people that have been in politics forever who, you know, have their ideology and what they want to push. And if you're not going to actually put any pressure on them from the outside, that, that there's not enough pressure you can place on them from the inside to actually get any, any real change. Yeah, there's very little institutional power that progressives have. They have a toehold. That's what they mm -hmm. have. Tiny bit. But they have the people. Right. So, That's you, their so use that. And I actually think, you know, I was just thinking about this while you were talking, like the GameStop thing is actually an interesting example of that because you have people like Ted Cruz and Mike yeah. Lee, who's, mm -hmm. you know, libertarian extraordinaire, jumping on this because there is so much public energy behind it. So even the very people who were instrumental in rigging the system to be what yeah. it is feel like they at least have to publicly signal mm -hmm. that they're on the right side of this thing. In addition to the example that you give of the $2,000 checks, it shows you that when you have an overwhelming consensus around something and that kind of visible public pressure, every politician is going to bend. <laughs> So you guys are both like you're both hitting on the exact point of what Justice Democrats was supposed to be about. It's supposed to be a Tea Party of the left. It's supposed mm -hmm. to be a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party. And um, yeah, unfortunately, happens to the best of them. They get to D.C. and all of a sudden they have D.C. brain and they think, well, if I go tit for tat and if I meet with them behind yeah. the scenes, then maybe I'll be able to in the long term, maybe I'll be right. able to get more concessions that way. And really, at the end of the day, it's just a. A boatload of rationalizations yeah. and they don't end up getting nearly enough. So the problem is twofold as I see it, and you guys both kind of hit on it. It's leadership and discipline. So you need leadership. You need somebody who really sees the whole vision and can see the whole chessboard and can be a leader and, and use the bully pulpit and yeah. the power of the people. And then the other thing is discipline. Listen, as lefties, this is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing that we're all independent thinkers and we try to come to our own conclusions and everything. But yeah, sometimes you need discipline. Sometimes you need like a dozen of them to get on the same page and you're all one. Mm -hmm. You're all of one mind. And just like they're saying with the Wall Street bets thing, hold the line. Right. Go out there, hold the line, say, no, you're going to give us a vote on Medicare for all. Because you know what? There's a pandemic right. and people are dying every single day. And I'm supposed to believe it's crazy right. to have a vote on universal health care in the middle of a pandemic mm -hmm. when we're the only developed country that doesn't have it in the first place. So that's the problem. There's no leadership and there's no discipline. And until we get those things, unfortunately, the conversations that we're having now are all going to be outside of the power centers. Right. And inside the power centers, you know, you'll have silly sniping at each other on Twitter. Yes, which is incredibly productive. I mean, hopefully Nina Turner would be that. 
leader I hope. if she's able I to hope. make it to Congress. Mm-hmm. Because part of part of the problem, I think, in terms of the D.C. brain that you're talking about, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's not that they have bad intentions, but they don't fully recognize who their enemy actually is. Yes. Whereas mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi sees them as the enemy. Mm-hmm. She may be very nice to their face. Mm-hmm. She's doing little things behind the scenes to try to ingratiate herself to them, but she sees them as the enemy, mm-hmm. and she will do whatever she can to quash them. And I just, I'm waiting to see what she does to try to keep Nina Turner from getting to Congress, by the way. But they don't have quite that clarity of the battle lines and where they are ultimately drawn because they buy a little bit too much into the idea that it's enough that the Democrats are better than the Republicans. And they are better than the Republicans. I don't want to pretend like they're equivalent. They're absolutely not. I would rather have Joe Biden there than Donald Trump. I would rather have Chuck Schumer than Mitch McConnell. I'd rather have Nancy Pelosi than Kevin McCarthy, I guess. But, (laughs) you know, but ultimately that's not sufficient. And what ends up happening is more sort of like signaling around what would be what you would like to do if only you didn't have, you know, X, Y and Z excuse that they always have lined up for why we can't have nice things. Yeah. And the the argument for push Biden left, you know, I I thought that was an argument. You know, I I doubted that he could be pushed left. But if if you're telling me that once he gets elected, which is what they were going out and telling a lot of their constituents, do you okay? we're we're telling you to vote for Joe Biden. And don't worry, once he gets in there, we're going to push him to the left. Well, how how do you expect to do that if you're not actually going to call him out, right? Like when he when he says he's going to push for the public option, that's what he's you know campaigning on. And then the first chance of him doing any type of health care, he is pushing f- more money into Cobra, which is already way too expensive for a lot of people and can't afford it. Well, then I need to hear you talking, right? Mm-hmm. I need to hear you talking about that. So that's what frustrates me is that it seems like they're unwilling to criticize the powers that be because they feel like, oh, we've worked with him before and we don't want to make him mad mm-hmm. because then he might not do what we, we talked about before and all these commitments that we got before. And it's that's just so, to me, very politically ignorant. Yeah. It, yeah. I'd be just be simply, you just look at history. Like that's, that's never worked in the past, right? The only time you ever, if you're fighting the system, right, which is what essentially the the progressive agenda is supposed to be doing if you're if you're doing that then you're never gonna win by working strictly within that system what type of um vitriol have you faced for daring to criticize joe biden oh a lot i mean i get people that all the time just say you know why are you always criticizing progressives and democrats you never talk about republicans i'm like do you think lindsey graham gives up what i think right do do you you know like you're like we've written them off right like (laughs) and i always say this like you can't morality shame republicans into doing the right thing it's just not gonna happen right like mitch mcconnell knows that there's people dying and he still is not he's doing everything he can to not pass yeah. Checks. And just to be, to be clear, there's a there's a giant difference between elected Republicans and average Joe right. and Jane Republican yes. voters who actually there is a prayer yeah. to, you know, appeal to their economic interest and say, no, no, you don't get it. Like we have the same interests a lot right. of the time, you know. But yes, for Republican politicians, as yes. you say, it's like you write them off. They're too far gone. Of course, they're too far. Yeah, gone. They're, they're never they're never going to be on your side. You're never going to flip them over into believing what you believe. So what's the point? But like you said, Republican voters, yeah. you speak to them directly. You say this is well, I, I believe that you deserve health care and right. guess what mm-hmm. it's going to be less for you 
It's going to cost yes. less for you. I believe you do deserve a $15 minimum wage because you're working 40 hours a week. And I know that people always say that a minimum wage job is just for teenagers working at McDonald's, but that's not the world we live in. Yeah. So don't believe that. And so, like I said, I think you talk to you know people that you believe you can get and try to flip them over to your side if they don't agree whatever you had that you had the conversation you tried um but i like to speak directly to democrats and to um progressives because one i feel like i can have an influence over them and they have complete control of government right now so there's no point in in talking about Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell, there's no point. The Democrats can do whatever they want. If they want to pass things through budget rec- reconciliation, they can do that. Mm-hmm. So there, so this whole, like, why aren't you talking Republicans thing anymore? It, it doesn't work. It's an excuse that doesn't, doesn't work. work anymore, and I'm loving it. And I, to me, this isn't a game. Like, if the Democrats do things, if, if, the, if Joe Biden passes universal health care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100% credit. Yeah. 100%, like, great. Like, it's not, I, I'm not doing this because I just want, you know, to, to shit on the Democrats all the time. I do that because the Democrats are supposed to be on our side. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be, and they're not. And I can feel like I have an ability and a platform to try and move them to the correct position. So that's what I'm going to try and do. Do you feel like there's an extra level of vitriol directed at black people who dare to speak out? Because I saw, like, even Charlemagne in that interview. Yeah. Even asking the question, the level of backlash that he got, I was like, really? I, th- I think it's when you when you look at the history of this country, right, and just the state that we're in right now, black people have always felt the brunt of, of the system the most. I mean, right. And so when I'm speaking out against Democrats and against, um, you know, if progressives aren't speaking truth to power to, to Joe Biden, it's because I know that in a lot of the communities that my parents came from and a lot of people that look like me come from are decrepit, need the most help out of anybody. And if you talk about something like climate change and climate justice or something like COVID, the disproportionate amount of people dying from that are black and brown people, right? right? And a lot of it is become from the environmental injustice and, you know, all the pollutants in the air and then COVID-19 is, is a respiratory disease, right? Or, or condition. So when when I talk and I speak and, and I advocate, it's coming from a place that I know if I'm in LA, 90% of the homeless people I see are black. If I go to the, the mission um, in LA and I'm at, the, at this a homeless shelter and I speak to the people, they say, well, yeah, 90, 95% of people that come through here are black. So a lot of these issues are black issues. So me as a black man, I'm going to be advocating for people that look like me that come from communities that my parents came from and my my advocacy is going to be on the behalf of them and if you don't like that then you can fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Uh, are you um are you cognizant of how your role and your position as an NFL running back mm-hmm. how that in some ways thinking specifically here about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in some ways that actually got you more attention yeah. and she was willing to take you more seriously because you know if it's me or if it's jimmy and we got a long list of problematic things that we've said all right. over the years so it's like it's easy to just dismiss us as yeah. like they're loud mouths that's what they do but when you chimed in all of a sudden they, she was like i got to respond because yeah. you know I, I take him seriously right you know? yeah so yeah do you feel like do you feel like that position gives you leeway in a way like now you're almost expected to be a leader. Like, is it a benefit or is it a downside? Do you feel like heavy is the crown? Where's the crown or yeah. whatever the saying is or what? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely feel like I feel that. Um, and I was so happy to be able to get AOC to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can lend that to the movement, great. You know, if, if they're more willing to respond to me than others, 
fine and awesome. I just want, like I said, to push this agenda forward. Mm. And if you have almost a million subscribers, Jimmy has almost a million subscribers, Rising has, like, if they're not willing to respond to y'all, but I have 100,000 followers and some people know me because of football, like, but she's willing to respond to me. You know, I don't understand that. You know, the, a yeah. lot more of her constituency falls under the umbrella of, you know, y'all. But um, that's fine. If I can bring them to the table, that's what I want to do. Um, I do feel like I, I see the – I mean, sometimes – and, you know, I text you all the time and ask you a lot of questions because I I am kind of new to this. And I, and I try and dive deep into it and, and learn a lot more about it. But I feel like I don't know all the things that I could know, obviously – a lot of people probably feel that way too, but if I'm using my voice and my platform, I want to make sure it's from a knowledgeable place, like I said earlier. Yeah. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, should I say this? I just don't know if, I don't know if there's more I'm not, I'm not thinking, you know, putting to it. And then it's like, oh, well then he's just like, you know, he's just a, a football player, dumb football. I've, I've got that too a lot of times. And, mm. um, I mean, that is what it is. Shut up and play. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Laura Ingram um, said that. Yeah. To LeBron. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, you get a little bit of that too, but I mean, that's neither here nor there. Um, but I just want to make sure I'm coming from a place of knowledge and that's why I lean on, you know, people that have been in the space for a lot longer, um, to, to help me out on that front. But, you know, I think there's also like part of the game is convincing people that they're too stupid to understand what's really right. yeah, going on. That, like that you're is just, true. you just don't understand. And so you're, you're, you're misinformed, well-intentioned, Justin, but misinformed. And I think, I think that actually that sense of sort of condescension, it works for a lot of people to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. have them keep quiet and just say, oh, I just don't really understand. I guess what's going on here so I better trust the experts yeah the thing I think is important too is I you know even though I'm on Twitter a lot and and I do learn a lot about this stuff I operate in my daily life very much so outside of the the political atmosphere a lot of people I talk to whether it's my college friends whether it's you know my NFL teammates or you know just going back home they they don't pay up they don't pay attention to politics and this is why force the vote for me was so big is that right now when there's no there's not a lot of sports you know there's not there's no concerts you know people aren't you know I mean people are but aren't you know traveling all, like in America usually it's so hard to get people to pay attention right and right now we have people paying attention and so you have to use that like you know like the corporate Democrats, like the Republicans always use spectacle yeah. to, to get people to agree with them. And so I'm saying let's use a spectacle to, you know, shine a light on the fact that we're the only country, the only developed country that doesn't have universal health care. This pandemic is whooping our ass. Our, you know, people in power seem to have no plan and they're still not willing to back a program, a legislation that will you know, catch us up to the rest of the world. And so I think that's why we have to start using spectacle because for me, it's hard to go out and talk to people like the, the, the craziest thing can happen. Like we talk, we're all, everyone's talking about on Twitter and I go and no one even knows what's going on. No one even knows what's happening. You know what I mean? So you have to take advantage when you have the advantage, you have to uh, take those situations and use them and to just try and get people to, you know, I guess stoke the consciousness of people and and get people more uh, to start to agree with you. Yeah. Would you, um, would you ever run for office? I I don't know. I, I it's it is enticing in the sense that like if I went if I went to DC it's like I'm not making no friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I live if I don't here. I'll be your friend, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> um, um I, I'm not here to make friends. Let's say that yeah. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to get things passed that are gonna you know help the communities that I come from, the communities that my parents come from. Um, but 
I just don't know. I don't know. I really like to be more on the activist side. Like that's what gives me a lot of energy. Like if I'm organized, like if I can organize like a rent relief fund or something like that, or organize a strike or something like that, like organize a protest that really gets me going. Mm. And, and, um, so I don't know. We'll see. I won't rule it out, but right now I I don't have any, you like being the outside bomb thrower. Yeah, I do. I really do. And I think that I have a platform for that. You do. And I think, there's a lot. I know there's a lot of people that are gonna gonna be running for Congress and go, going to be running for these positions that I can give a platform to, and if I can do that and amplify those voices, maybe it would be better than me just doing it myself. You thinking about anything specific? Yeah, there? so maybe some progressive talk. Yeah, maybe a little, a little uh, progressive uh, YouTube show, something like that. Um, I'd watch that. Yeah. <laughs> On that front, yeah, I will be uh I'm in the midst of uh of getting things together to to start that. So I'll probably announce something like that at the end of the uh, of the week. Awesome. So stay, stay tuned. I'm that so sorry amazing. you just got fired from the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we'll see. I, I've got I've got to set up my life for afterwards. <laughs> um, what does it look like when you're in season? Like what does your week look like? How do you are you able to follow politics as much? Like how do you maintain that balance it's it's it really is difficult yeah um because football like in season it's it's almost like having two full-time jobs mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like we travel a lot obviously um during the week i'm pretty much at, at the facility for 10 to 11 hours a day mm-hmm. um and then you know you gotta go home watch film and then you got like gotta go to sleep early you gotta make sure you're staying like it's it's you're always your mind is always focused on it. So I can, I do, you know, obviously try and keep up as much as I can. I usually don't tweet as much just because my mind is just in other places, you know, just focus on, you know, what I have to do that week. Um, But I try and balance it as much as I can. And, you know, if I do, or when I do end up doing my show, it probably would end up being like maybe once a week, but that's why I'm trying to, you know, kind of take advantage of the time I have now Mm -hmm. um, where, which is nice out of season i you know i work out pretty much every every day but that you know might be a few hours a day and the rest of the day you know i'm free and so that's why i want to you know use this time to advocate um enlighten people and and my biggest thing is going to be like trying to i feel like people are so close Mm -hmm. you know people are so like they understand the game's rigged they understand the system's Mm -hmm. rigged but but they don't really know the solutions, right? You know what yeah. I mean. And so that's where I really why I want to focus is bringing people that maybe like me for football or, or for other reasons. Um, you know that you know from my hometown, just get those people to see like, wow, like I didn't, I never looked at it like that. And and just yeah, enlighten people and stoke their consciousness because I think as the the more we uh, move along here, the more we get more people on our side. And it's going to take a lot, right, to actually beat back the system. It's going to take a, a lot of people on the ground, um, an upswell of support on the ground to actually uh, to get 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 these things passed. But it's going to take that pressure. So um, I'm I'm interested as well in sort of the mechanics of your day to day. And one of the questions that I keep thinking of is. Are you, as as a professional football player, are you guided from leadership and management or is like the discipline sort of incumbent upon you? You know what I mean? Like yeah. how much is it a system versus you? It It's both. So if you... If you're in a system, you know, like a very disciplined organization, like say like the Patriots or like the Steelers or just some of these like very storied franchises that are are pretty much are built on discipline, um, that helps too. But just as an NFL player in general, where it differs from college a lot is in college you're very guided. You know, mm-hmm. you have over 100 people on, on a team. Um, 
you're 18 to 21 years old, a lot of the young people are just very immature com- coming in and you got, you got a lot to learn. When you get to the NFL, it's like, no, like, if you want to get treatment, that's on you, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you're a grown like, up now. You're a grown up, yeah. Like if you you want to go outside and, and um, you want to work out in the off season, that's on you. You know what I mean? Whereas in uh, in college, it's like you have you have a program. You know what I mean? Right. And so um, it's it is different in that sense where like you're a professional and if you're not getting the job done, we'll just go find someone else that does, that mm-hmm. will, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so you have to stay on your P's and Q's and like, and it, it's our job. It's my job, right? It's your, it's y'all's job to do this. Well, it's my job, uh, you know, to play football, be a professional athlete. And so every single day, even if it is the off season, I'm like, okay, waking up, what can I do to, you know, to help myself prepare for, you know, eventually for camp or for OTAs and stuff like that. Do you feel like the mental toughness that you've gotten from being a professional athlete translates into some of the toughness yeah. and strength that you show also in the political arena? Yeah, I mean, I think it I think it takes that, you know, I think it takes taking a risk, right? Just got, you know, and a lot a lot of things about sports in general, it's like you got to you got to take risks, right? Like um you just got and when it's it's tough to explain, but like when when you're in the arena and like you know the, the crowd's going crazy it's super loud it's like it almost to me it almost calms me mm. it almost you know like cuz i can't think it's right. so loud you can't think like you just wow. you just shuts off your yeah mind. and you just go out there and do it you Flow know state. exactly at the zone you're in the zone you're in the zone and so when i when i when i bring that to politics i think of like there's always going to be a lot of people in your ear telling you that what you're doing isn't right you know that uh, you know, you shouldn't be fighting this fight or you, you, you know, you're going too hard on them. You're, you know, all this type of stuff. But I, I always go back to the, the, the point of, you know, if you're fighting for the right thing and, um, if you have justice and, and you have the leverage of the people on your side, then it doesn't matter all the outside noise. Mm-hmm. All the outside noise is just that it's outside noise. And so that's what I really want to implore the progressives in, in Congress to do is that, and, and like Nina Turner says, that's why I love listening to Nina Turner. It's like, you go in there to fight for the people. And you and, and you always say it, like, it's going to it's gonna take you being hated by the media, mm-hmm. right? Because the media is there to support the establishment. Right. 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 That's and right. so if if you're hated by the me- by the media, that's a good thing. Good, bathe yes. in it. That's a great thing. Bathe yes. in it. And 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 their opinions, their opinions don't matter. What matters is I go back to my district, and those people are happy that I'm fighting for them because mm-hmm. they need help, and I'm there to help them. And so, what whatever whatever fears they have of of whether it's the media or intra party, right, their own party not liking them, that's okay. That's all just outside noise. You're there. You're in that arena to fight for the people. And so that's why I'm always so hard on them because I know they have the potential to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think Nancy Pelosi has the potential to do that. But I, I think AOC and Ilhan Omar, I think they have the potential to do that. And that's why I stay on them because I don't want them to fall into where – uh, 26 years from now, like Nancy Pelosi in '94, she's asking for single a, mm-hmm. for single payer and a vote, right. and then 26 years later, she's the one that is per, like she has the power to bring it to the floor, and she won't do it, mm-hmm. right? Like I want to make sure that's not them because I was so excited when they were elected, and I think a lot of us lefties were, and especially when when Bernie was, um, you know, had his uh, had his run, like we were all together mm-hmm. and we were all pushing on the same front. And I think if they can be turned, you know, turned into like, okay, here's, here's a strategy we have. We need y'all to back us up so we can get this done. 
then we'll all be together we'll be again there. doing yeah. that. You know what I mean? But if they're not going to, they're, and it almost feels like they aren't cohesive enough together to, to, to have a, a, a cohesive strategy that we can all get behind. So that's why there's all this different fighting and everyone has their own strategy and all this stuff. So I'm just hoping that, that we can, we can come together and, and they can, they can lead us on that. That answer was amazing because you actually answered my question before I asked it. I was going to ask, does football provide like a calmness or a flow state for you? And then I was also going to ask as a follow-up, does politics sort of give you the same feeling, like that zone-like feeling? You know what I mean? It, it does, and that's why – and it's really more – on the activism side like i said earlier mm. that gives me that like rush like i feel like no matter you know sometimes because it's easy to be on twitter it's easy to like see all the things that people are saying and be like and almost like second guess like man maybe i shouldn't uh, maybe i shouldn't believe this but it's like no there's always going to be those detractors there's always going to be that outside noise and if you feel and if you feel like what you're doing is just and right mm -hmm. then then none of that matters and i think i get some of that from football in the sense that when you're at a home state, uh, an away state, and when I play at Northwestern, we go play at Penn State. There's a hundred thousand fans, all in white, and it's just us seventy people on the sideline. It, it does feel like it's us against the world. Mm. And tell me how that is in the progressive movement. You're used so to true. you're used to being exactly. everything stacked against you and everyone around hating you. Exactly, <laughs> and it's like you you just relish in it, you know, and it, and it makes it even more fun, and it makes it even that more satisfying when you win. And I think that's why the whole GameStop thing is is so <laughs> now everyone feels at it because it's like the little guy mm -hmm. finally won right like that and, right you, exactly yeah. despite all the barriers that we have we actually got over that got over that hurdle and won so i think that can be the progressive movement but we have to we have to find a way to come together we have to find a way for progressives in the house to actually start fighting the power and not coalesce um to all the to all the interests and all the all the pressures that that come with being in dc what are you going to do for the super bowl I'll actually um, probably just chill. I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I do love watching the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, and it's weird because like, now that my season's over, it's like yeah. sometimes I forget football's still going. You know, because really? I'm still, I'm, You're just st done with I'm it. so in. I mean, it's like you have to get away from it. Yeah. You know, and obviously if I was in the playoffs, like you're in it, right? Of course. And so. But after the season, it's like you have to you have to get away from it a little bit because for six straight months, I'm waking up at five forty five and I'm like football, mm. football, football. Eat, sleep, breathe it. Yeah, exactly. And so when I get away from it, it's like it's like a little, you know a little bit of just you know, take a deep breath and, and kind of bathe and just being a, a regular human being again. Um, but I do love the Super Bowl, and I think it's going to be a great one. You got, I mean, Mahomes is going to be one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. He's already you know on. But the sort way of there. fuck him though. But yeah, he plays for Casey. <laughs> it, and it's tough because like I, I love the game and, and yeah. I love watching just amazingly skilled players. But it's also like the guys in my division. Like fuck. <laughs> you know? But hey, we, we got a good we got a good one ourselves. Uh, Herbert is uh, he's he's unreal. He's a really good dude. So do you start to get itchy when it's been a while since you've played? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I took like two weeks off and I'm like, oh, I gotta work out. I'm like that, I'm like that with eating McDonald's. When it's oh. been a while, I'm like, damn, I really want to eat some McDonald's. <laughs> Vibe. <laughs> yeah um but usually by like march i'm like oh, like i'm like i'm like itching i'm like oh i can't wait to get back out there and it's like well then you get to the season it's like oh my god six five four more months of this like it's grueling right? it's, it's sure. grueling it is and it's like especially if you have any type of injury then it's mm. like and it's really it's just the sense of impermanence like i yeah. mean that's what that's what the nfl is you can I be hate that. you I can be that. great one day and then the next day 
you blow your knee you're out, done. you're done. How do you think about longevity? Or do you think about that? Or do you just like... You almost like, can't. Yeah. yeah. You almost can't because if you're out there, and this is the whole thing about the toughest part about playing hurt. Like, obviously, you have some type of physical barrier, but it's really the mental. Mm. It's really the mental because you don't feel 100% like yourself. Mm. And you're at, you're at the level where, like, if you're not 100% yourself, it's already hard enough being 100% yourself just to excel at, at the, you know, at the NFL level. So it, it is tough, but you can't, you just, you just got to be in the moment. You can't be out there thinking about longevity past the fact that you protect yourself when you can. Mm. Um, but you just got to go out there and play. And it's like, once it's done, it's done. You know, I've been playing since I was eight. Uh, shoot, I've, what's that? 16 years now. Um, you know, I'm towards the tail end of my football career and, and that's okay. I, I'm, I'm at peace with that. But, Every single opportunity I get on the field, mm, you're giving it all. You get, you give it everything yeah. you got, and it's it's fun. It's a game, but it's also what I do, and it's what I love. Funny enough, that's actually one of the things Kobe said. He kept getting the question after he retired. People were like, "You miss it, right? Like you're Kobe Bryant. You miss it, yeah. right?" And every time he was like, "I don't even miss it a little bit." Really? And yes. And his reasoning was, when I was out there, I gave it one hundred percent every second. So since he did everything he could when he was out there, he's like. I'm letting the chips fall where they may, to. and I'm good now. And then he mm. moved on, and he, you know, he had he was doing things that he found fulfilling. He yeah. was creating documentaries and whatnot. So you know, and, and that's by the way, that's why I'm wearing purple because Kobe. <laughs> it was Kobe died. Uh, yeah, yesterday I think it was or, or uh, the 26th. 26th was, yeah. yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. that's why I'm wearing purple today. Yeah, that 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 was a tough. That was a tough. You met him actually. Year. I did. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, and that I don't get starstruck a lot. Mm -hmm. I really don't. Um, Kobe's one of those people, <laughs> you know, where uh, he's just, like a demigod. He yeah. just was unbelievable. I mean, just his mindset. And it's so like, it's when you look at it from the outside, it's like, okay, yeah, I understand that mama mentality, but like actually <laughs> putting that into practice yes. mm. when you're at, you know, the highest levels of a sport, it's just so hard. Complete and that complete obsession. And yeah. the great, the greatest thing that, I mean, that I felt when I met him was that he came and talked to our team, a bunch of NFL players, right? And we're all looking like, oh, let's go. <laughs> um, so, like, we're all, you know, even, like, Philip Rivers is like, you know, he's going to be a Hall of Famer. And he's like, oh, let's go. <laughs> so we're all starstruck. I mean, he's, like, one of those figures. But even afterwards, he stayed and he talked to anybody who wow. wanted to talk to them. He gave them all the attention in the world. And and, and the, the thing about being, like, a public figure, and I'm not I'm nowhere near Kobe Bryant, but, like, if I go back to my hometown or I go back to Northwestern, like, you're going to get people that just stop and want to talk to you and all stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's hard when you're living your own life and experiencing your own life to like step into that. Like, yeah, you got to flip the switch in your mind. Right. Yeah. To like be, you know, like you don't, you don't want to give, that might be the only time one of your fans meets you. Right. Yeah, right. So you don't want to give them a bad That's impression. Right. Like, Oh, this guy's an asshole. You know what I mean? So it's hard to always keep that kind of like level headedness, even if you're having a bad day, kind of like you said, flip the yeah. switch. Mm -hmm. But, um, Kobe made it look easy. He he was just like, it was just unbelievable. He had this aura around him where you could tell all he wanted to do was like impart his, like share his knowledge, impart mm -hmm. his wisdom um, upon like even us who didn't play the same sport, but kind of are in the same arena. And so that was incredible. And it was just such a, I mean, L, Los Angeles was gloomy like, wow. for a while. Um, and you can just feel it. And I'm in Orange County, which is like not even like maybe like an hour outside of LA. And it was like, even we felt it down there. So it was, it was a tough moment, but 
Do you get to see like the difference in the way different guys sort of try to achieve that flow state and how they handle? The yeah, game? no, it's so it's so unique. Like even like before the game, like some people like won't talk to anybody and just you know like are, are by themselves in their zone, and some people love talking to people. Which and are you? I. I feel like I kind of go in between both. Like sometimes, mm. some games I'm just like, let me just put my headphones on. Sometimes I'm just like, you know, let me just talk to Austin, have a conversation and just laugh or whatever. But when it comes to actually on the field, I, I kind of turn into kind of how I am in the political arena where it's like, I'm very talkative. I'm very upbeat, energetic. Like I'm talking to everybody. And then when it's like just during the normal week, I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. Like, that's I, I'm, yeah, I'm just like kind of going about my business. Like, you know, I'm still, you know, conversating and, and talking to you know, all my teammates and stuff, but it's just, I, I turn into like a different person hmm. right. in I, game day. Yeah. I think that goes back to like introvert, extrovert too. Like if somebody's naturally extroverted, when they get in that comfort zone, they want to yeah. bounce ideas off people and whatnot mm-hmm. you know whereas i'm deeply introverted even though people are surprised to hear that because i talk for right. a living but like I, i'm off off before i go to like do you know whatever do a debate or whatever yeah like i'm shut down for an hour don't talk to me don't look at me yeah the only person allowed in my general vicinity is corn at that time and corn mm. knows the deal he's like i'm gonna shut the fuck up because kyle's got that look on right now <laughs> so yeah it varies from person to person but it is interesting how that psychology kind of varies massively you know yeah well we are so grateful to you for flying out and being here. I haven't, this is my first time getting to meet you, which I was really, really excited about. And I feel like we know each other. I definitely feel like (laughs) we know each other. And, um, you know, I just, I feel like your voice is so incredibly powerful and important. And it's actually rare when people recognize the power that they have and then they seek to use it as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. And, and just to people, to people like y'all, like, that helped me learn so much, right? Coming from a place of, of kind of political ignorance. That's why I appreciate just the lefty media space in general, because I think it's so necessary, right? Like we finally have something that can beat back against the establishment, against CNN, against MSNBC, Fox, New York Times, right? We actually have real people that are informing, uh, you know, people on the ground. And that's why I think, that's why I want to join, right? I want to join that space so I can use my platform, like you said, to fight for things that, that we deserve. Man, Americans work so hard, right? Like Americans deserve to have healthcare, deserve to have their basic needs met. And so that's a place where I come from. Um, I've, I grew up, uh, you know, knowing that, you know, we are middle-class, but we're one health emergency away from, you know, like so many bankruptcy, like so many people and just living with that stress, living with that anxiety, it's super unhealthy. And I think it, it pushes us as Americans to a place of where we're so combative, where we're so uh, tribalized, we're so, um, you know, separated. And, and I'm hoping that, um, the show and my show and y'all show we can continue to spread the message and uh and and remedy that so i appreciate you having me on of course Thank you. tell everybody where they can do. find you yeah on twitter uh, i'm at j underscore man prime two one um that and and i mostly post football stuff on instagram but uh, jj prime two one and uh yeah i'll be announcing something later this week maybe so. a little something else right maybe a little something on youtube coming or maybe whatnot. a little something All on right. youtube you guys, uh, <laughs> you guys yeah stay tuned and uh and we'll see all right, thanks, man. All we right. appreciate, appreciate it. Thank y'all. you, Justin. Um, you know what was interesting from that was actually something that you picked up on, which is that the way Justin approaches politics, which shouldn't be unusual but actually is, is very policy-focused. Mm-hmm. So rather than, like, the personality game or the super partisan game, it's just, no, here are my issues, here's what I care about, and I'm going to analyze who's best on those things. 
so I'm actually a long-term optimist on that point because I think that all you have to do is scratch just beneath the surface and you can get almost anybody to that point because you're right. There's so much BS and there's so much culture war nonsense and, you know, people get mired in all the wrong things and they, they get led down a, a bad path, whether it's from, you know, mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever, even friends and family, like they'll just be led down a bad path. But if you could talk to somebody face to face, I find that it's very easy to get them to like have a light bulb moment of like, wait, yeah, all these things I'm thinking about and caring about are nonsense. Like they're totally useless. Who cares about Ted Cruz's personality or AOC's personality or whatever it is? No, it's about the substance. It's about what are they actually doing? And Justin, you're right. He's unique in the sense that he didn't need anybody to say to him, like, this is what you should care about. When he actually sat down and reflected on it, he was like, yeah, no, I, this, this is what politics is. Politics is about policy. And so, you know, that's, you're right. It's unique, but I, at least I'm optimistic in the long term that you can get most people to that point. Would you say you're optimistic or are you more pessimistic that like we're always going to be in this position where it's always going to be culture war garbage and it's always, you know what I mean? What do you think? This week I feel optimistic okay. and I have to say it's it's because of the GameStop thing that I feel optimistic. <laughs> Truly. I know. It makes sense. I'm Seriously. laughing, but it's a pot, happy laugh. Because <laughs> it's the first thing in the, you know, since the Trump era began that I can think of where you really had it, it was the people versus the elites. Mm -hmm. And everybody was like, fuck those guys. We see exactly what's going on. And so it was like this weird unifying moment, or I guess the better way to put it is it was divisive, but along the right lines, not along like partisan, tribal, stupid culture war lines, but actually along like class lines. And so in that way, I do actually feel hopeful. And I don't know that it's an act Accident that that happened relatively quickly after Trump was out of office because mm. Trump is such a singularly polarizing figure that in when he's around, if he was still president, somehow this all would have ended up about Donald Trump. <laughs> That's a good point. Hundred yeah. percent, right? He would have tweeted something, he would have said something, mm. executive order. People on the right would be like, "See, he's on the people's side," and Democrats would have said something stupid, or on the uh, who knows what he would have done. But somehow it would have ended up being all about Donald Trump, and then everybody's just right back to their corner. So I don't think it's an an accident that these little glimmers of sort of like unity amongst the people are occurring after he's gone. Yeah, but let me ask you, what do you think happens now because it like they're pulling out every trick in the book to try to like take all the energy oh, yeah. out of this thing, deflate the tires, like whatever we can, throw the kitchen sink at them, collusion behind the scenes, elitist cabal, like it's insane Blatant. how far they're going. Blatant. So, but what happens in response is like, is this actually going to be a moment of like, no, seriously, fuck these guys and we rise up in some way? And if so, what way are we rising up? How are we rising up? Right. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't think, see, I, I, mean, thing. <laughs> I don't think anyone can know. I think right. the only thing you can say for sure is we already had this year where everyone was getting screwed except the very top. And mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the graphs and the data, it is just completely clear. These hedge funds, Matt Taibbi um, crunched the data. These hedge funds had their best year in a decade mm -hmm. while everybody else was like dying and starving. Mm -hmm. So we already had this sense of realization on that front. We also had this sense of realization that like, oh, 
if the government wants to do something to mm-hmm. make my life easier, they can. This whole idea that, like, the government is irrelevant and you're on your own and they can't possibly help, so don't even consider it, that's also out the window. And now you have this experience of, look, I'm like you. I thought, you know, maybe I'm going a little too far with how rigged the system is. Now I'm like, I wasn't going far en- enough. Yeah. And everyone in the country is seeing how rigged it truly is in like an explicit way, like out in the open type of way, I think those shifts in consciousness have to add up to something. What that something is, who the hell knows? You couldn't have predicted this thing. Like you can't predict any of these events specifically, but does it add up to something and change the direction of the country in some way? Yeah, I think it has to. I'm just scared that we can't necessarily make the leaps to the thing that I think is probably the real solution, which is like a general strike. Mm. You know, how do you build the bridge from what's happening here all the way to a general strike? I mean, that seems like mission impossible to me, but you know, but you're right that they're so brazen with it now and that you get like the barstool guy agreeing with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Like anybody who's even like one step removed from the real power centers are like, fuck this, this is bullshit. Totally. So what do you do with that? Where do you, how do you take that energy and just harness it for something that's incredibly positive? And, you know, I will tell you that the pessimistic view on it is that what happens is they pull out all the stops and use all the tricks and then they win. And the energy, it might still be there, but the energy can be directed where people turn on each other again and you're right back to the partisan Mm -hmm. bickering. You know what I mean? Oh, that's almost definitely going to happen. That's like almost certainly going to happen. But that doesn't mean that that's the end. Right. Right, Yeah. Because these things build on each other. Right. These moments of social consciousness and awareness and reshaping and realization build on each other. So that's why I say, like, it's chaos theory. You can't predict what the next flashpoint will be and whether it will be in a productive direction or a dramatically unproductive direction. But you can say that something important, significant has been revealed here. That's part of why they're so mad, by the way, that something significant has been revealed here and other things of significance about our economy and how fake it all Mm -hmm. is and how rigged it all is have been revealed over the past year. And I just don't think there's any real going back from that. Yeah. You know, the thing that's that sticks out to me is the the performance aspect of it all, like the civility politics angle of it all, where Mm. at they're they're so desperate now. They're at the point where they're relying on like, okay, but these guys wear the suits and ties and these guys are posting rude things on message boards. So obviously you got to go with the suit and tie guys. Right. 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 Everybody with us. These guys have naughty language. We can't be with them. That's literally that. They've had to go to that point because it's so obvious that the other the other ploy that they're trying is like, we're just concerned about their best interests. I don't think they really understand. We just want to protect them from getting hurt. Somebody's going to get caught holding the bag, and we just want to make sure that the little guy is ultimately protected, which is just such bullshit. You didn't care when they were getting screwed out of their homes Mm -hmm. and, you know, left for dead this entire... You didn't care. Mm -hmm. Now suddenly, oh, we're really worried that they don't understand what's going on here. No, actually, you guys are the ones that don't really understand what's going on here. And it's also totally mask off moment for the media like i mean cnbc oh, and actually but the, such clouds. they had this moment in <laughs> 08 and 09 too though because i remember they were in the middle of the crash they were inviting on the ceos of the companies that were doing all the terrible stuff with the subprime mortgages and making every bad decision in the book they were inviting them on and they were saying like 
there's not even going to be a recession, bro. And they were airing this as if, like, I'm now talking to an objective expert about what's happening right, right now. Right, and it's like, right. how does everybody not get on the same page now and just, I don't even know what I would advocate for, so I'll bite my tongue. But you really do feel, at a moment like this, you really do feel like, viva la revolution, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, you definitely do. I mean, if you zoom out a little bit, there's this thing in economics called ultimatum theory that you probably have heard of, where basically, like, they do this experiment. You have two people. And you give one person $100, and they're allowed to divide it however they want. And so the prediction, if you if all humans are just total, like, rational machines, is that no matter what the distribution is, you're going to accept it as long as it's more than zero. So if they give you one penny, okay, and they get to keep the other $99.99, you're still one penny better off. So sure, you should accept it. But in practice, what actually happens is people reject any distribution that's somewhere less than 30%. So they're willing to accept some level of inequality. Mm -hmm. They're not expecting it to be perfectly equal. But if you screw them over too much, they're willing to, they would rather get nothing Mm -hmm. than see you benefit to that extraordinarily unfair degree. And that's basically where we are right now. People are like, fuck you. I would be willing to pay to see you suffer. And that's the energy in the country, and that is what comes out and surfaces in a moment like this. And, and that's actually reflected really well when you look at the uh, the CEO to average worker pay ratio over right. the years. Like you go back to like the 1980s. Don't quote me on these numbers, guys. It's been a long time since I've read these these facts, but it's like it was like 40 to one or thereabouts, something like that. CEO paid average worker pay. Now we're at a place where it's over 300 to one, and like there are consequences to that. When you look at the numbers uh, with the COVID depression, as I'm calling it, the job losses are four times more than in the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was you know, a historic and historic event. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember graduating into that economy and everybody looked around and was like, what the fuck do we do now? Mm-hmm. Like, there are no jobs. There are no jobs. There's no opportunity. Everybody's, you know, filled to the brim with debt. And now we're talking about a situation where there's four times more job loss. Like... There's gonna be, there's gonna be problems associated with that, and you can either harness that energy for good or harness that energy for bad. And you know, it is a scary moment in the sense that, and Trump, Trump was a great example of this. It's like if you're you're either gonna go populist right or populist left in a moment like this. You mm-hmm. know, there's no there's no back to normal status quo. And the re- Joe was able to sort of squeak by, I think, underperforming, but he was able to squeak in because the populist right example was a total fraud and he didn't do stuff that helped people you know but then you you it's almost like a brief back to normal period back to normal and then again jesus christ i mean fucking carrot top could get elected with how crazy shit is now right like (laughs) anybody can get elected with this shit you know because look everything's society is showing itself to be like this one giant joke at this point you know what i mean i want to know what went on in your brain when you reach for the carrot top example oh i didn't have to reach for it it was just right there that's not a person i've thought about in a long long time I'm brilliant. What do you want me to tell you? (laughs) (laughs) The thing about Trump is that he played the part of the populace. And the best thing about him, and I always say this, is the people he pissed off. Like the the way that people freaked out, whether it was financial elites or media elites, political elites, like the meltdown that they had was the best thing about Trump. But then when when he's in office... No one did better than those exact people. He gave people. them everything they I wanted. Mean, and not only did he give them everything, like, even you look at the media that, you know, went out and every day, every story, Trump is bad, Trump is bad, Trump is, every everything is about Trump. 
they benefited tremendously. Ratings went up. People, ratings went up. People wrote books. People made careers. People made millions off of it. This was amazing for them. So in every regard, he t- turns out to be like the anti-elite who is remarkably amazing for elites. And so, yeah, complete, complete fraud on that front. But, you know, to bring it back around to Justin, I do think there's something very important, and it may seem simple, but I actually think it is relatively profound that if you want to win people and you really, and I think this is what makes him different is like, he's actually in the locker room having these conversations with people who see things really differently from him and come from this from a different place, but who he knows and trusts are basically decent people trying to figure this shit out. And he's not, he's both in the online world, in the Twitter sphere and not. So he has connectivity between both places. So he has this just super, like, practical, pragmatic view about how to talk about these issues, focusing on the policy, taking Mm -hmm. the personalities out of it, taking the partisan, like, polarization out of it, and just like, hey, here's what's up with healthcare, here's what's up with trade, here's what's up with war. It's so clear to me that that is absolutely the best way to ultimately win people over. And America loves sports. So since America loves sports, I'm actually very interested to see what the perception is in regards to him when he gets into progressive talk all the time. Because, you know, like, yes, we look back, like people look at Muhammad Ali, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, Justin would say, don't you dare make that comparison because he's the greatest ever, right? So I'm not necessarily making a direct comparison. But what I am saying is people looked back on Muhammad Ali and realized that his political activism was actually perhaps the most heroic thing about him. Like, yes, he was the greatest in the ring and he's remembered for his boxing accolades, but it is also, America loves sports. They love athletes and then they love a good character arc and story. And so Muhammad Ali is viewed as a hero. It could go in that direction for somebody like Justin where he's more accepted because he also had that foot in through the sports world. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? If you come up purely through politics... It's easy to hate you on either side. It is. It's easy to hate you on either side because it's so easy to make a character out of you. If you're coming from a totally different avenue, if you're coming from professional sports, you are sort of given a little bit of a pass in the sense that America says, well, first and foremost, I I put you in that box already. So if you're going to step outside of that box, I do think it might be like a little bit of a grace period where people are willing more to listen. But again, it could go either way. Like, that's why I'm I'm curious to see how it unfolds because it is also possible that it becomes a shut up and dribble thing where people yeah. are like, no, the exact opposite. We want you to only do that thing and shut the fuck up. Right. You know what I mean? So I'm curious to see how that goes. But I think there are enough examples of athletes who got politically involved and then people realize like, oh, that's the heroic shit that ultimately they ended up winning in the eyes of, you know, public perception. But sometimes that takes a long time. It, like, oh, for sure, yeah. In mm-hmm. the moment, I mean, now villain. we look back and we're like, hero. But at the time, villain, right? Mm-hmm. Completely villainized. Because because I think there is a recognition of the special cultural power right. that athletes have. And so they're in the initial response is vigorous opposition and demonization and vilification so it makes people uncomfortable right you aren't you aren't doing just the thing that we want you to do and you actually have this power and you recognize you have this power and you're using it in ways that are scary for us as a like elite class the people who have the levers of power in the country so um i'm excited though to see what he 
what he's up to. I think, you know, he's an incredibly important voice, as I told him. And it really is a very unusual thing when people recognize the moment and feel a responsibility in that moment to use the little pieces of power and little bits of leverage that they ultimately have. Yeah. And honestly, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. One of my favorite guests. One of my favorite guests for sure. Very conversational, very easy to talk to. And I think he gets it in a way that not many people get it. And so, you know, what that what that turns into, we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, he's a special guy. For sure. For sure. Um, thank you guys for watching or listening or whatever you're doing this week. And uh, if you want the video on Fridays, subscribe on Substack. But actually... We didn't make this clear before. You can subscribe on Substack for $5 to get the video, or you can just subscribe and you'll get all the newsletters and everything, but for free, and you'll get the audio on Saturday still. Yeah, there's two ways to subscribe. You can subscribe for free, and then you'll get the emails when the free audio drops, which people, you know, they want to they want to hear it one way or another, whether they listen to it or they watch it. So it's $5 a month and you'll get the video. Or like you said, it's if you could sign up for free for the newsletter, and then you'll know exactly when the audio drops every single week. Yeah. All right. Appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Bye.